Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I've gotten a lot of questions about an article that appeared looking at um, elements in baby hair or child's hair in children with autism compared to those without autism. It appeared on NBC News and was published open access, which we love, a couple weeks ago. And so um, thank goodness the one of the authors of the article, Dr. Manisha Rora, is such an amazing colleague. Um, he's, he's here to talk about the study um, and the set of studies and the set of results that will be coming out of, of these particular set of experiments. So he's um, a professor and vice chairman of the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and a founding member of the Mount Sinai Institute for Exposomic Research. He focuses on the effects of prenatal and early life chemical exposures on long-term health trajectories, and he has turned his attention to autism. Dr. Aurora, thank you for joining us. And is there anything else I missed about um, you and your interest in autism or your interest in toxicology and, and exposomics? Uh, Alicia, firstly, a, a big thank you to you and to your foundation for, for all that you do and for inviting me for this chat today. Uh, just for the sake of you know full transparency and to declare any financial conflicts of interest, I'm also leading a small startup company that spun out of my lab at Mount Sinai, so it's very much a Mount Sinai spin-out. Um, and because they're interrelated, some of the technologies I talk about today straddle both sides, my academic career, as well as part of this uh, this startup company, which is called Linus Biotechnology. What led you to look at autism specifically? So you're, you're absolutely right. There's this technology that we will discuss today, the hair biomarkers, and before that, the tooth biomarkers, are designed to be what we call a platform to study multiple different diseases and different health states using a common unified platform. What turned me broadly towards neurological disorders was when I first came here 10 years ago, as we were setting up this new lab, my colleagues in neuroscience walked over and said, you know what, genomics has been amazing in some areas like in oncology. However, we're really struggling to move the needle because in neuroscience, we just haven't been able to develop biomarkers that can detect the disease long before it becomes symptomatic. And that's always been one of the important goals. And among the neurological diseases, autism was very high priority. Mount Sinai has a long track record in autism research. We have a center for autism research. So it happened for multiple reasons. One was that you know there was a need, there was a strong public health need. I had an interest in neuroscience, and now I was in an environment where the technology that I've been working on, this focus on environmental medicine, was certainly, certainly very valued as a tool to advance neuroscience. Sometimes the environment can be the forgotten stepchild, or sometimes it's called the redheaded stepchild of autism research. And I know a lot of families with redheaded kids, so that's not an insult, it's just a term. Why is it happening? Why are environmental factors either being dismissed or not even explored at all? Absolutely. And before you start, I, I should say my, my in-laws are Irish, so I have a lot of redheads in, in my immediate family, too. Um, the environment is often forgotten, and this is not unique to just autism research. Uh, if you look broadly over the past 20 years of NIH funding, autism research, uh, or I should say environmental research, has gotten far less funding than genomic research. Yet, 
look at the reality of what all the science says. Many diseases have a large non-genomic component and a smaller genomic component, especially neurological diseases. I also study uh, Lou Gehrig's or ALS. I study schizophrenia. And you just look at the heritability, which is a crude measure of how to balance genomic and environmental factors. Often the heritability estimates imply that there is a large chunk of non-genomic factors. Even in autism, it's roughly equally balanced. The estimates I see are around 50%, maybe a little bit more in terms of heritability. So we know there is a, there is a big component there that is not determined by genes. However, it's just that genomic technologies were more advanced than exposomic technologies. We learned to sequence the whole genome, but sequencing the environment has been much harder. And that is one, one reason why our focus turned towards genomics more just because we had the tools to, to study genomics better than the environment. But now that's changing. Uh, the work that my team has been doing and others uh, around the world, uh, there's a real groundswell to recognize that the environment is important and we need to put as much of an effort in studying the environment um, as we did with genomics in the past. Thanks. And another thing that I always emphasize on this podcast is that there are very few, if any, studies or maybe a half a dozen that look at gene-environment interactions. And so hopefully with advances in exposomics and uh, measures of environmental factors, we can start looking, combining that with whole genome sequencing and looking at gene environmental factors as well. You're absolutely right. That's very much needed. And our effort, although wasn't gene-by-environment interaction, one of our first studies was looking at twins, even identical twins who were discordant for autism. We did study in Sweden. They have a strong history of doing very good twin research because they have this large national registry of twins that they can tap into for various types of health research. In a way, that was one of the starting points of, of this journey for me, that we were picking up these signatures that distinguished uh, children who had an identical twin without autism, but yet they had developed autism. So we could see this discordance in, in the, in the future risk of autism, even though they were genetically identical, the mother's environment was the same during pregnancy, they shared a placenta and, and the such. So there was strong control of genetics. However, you're right, we're not really, that, that is not really looking at gene by environment interaction. And those studies are, are absolutely needed. Well, you are an expert in exposomic research, yes. um, and you have been looking for a while. I mean, this isn't your first trip to the rodeo here about looking at environmental factors look, using novel approaches. So you mentioned this in your paper, which I will post on the podcast summary, but um, also you have a long history in looking at baby teeth and how yes. exposures can be measured in baby teeth, and now you're moving to hair. So can you tell us a little bit about your studies in baby teeth, what you found, and then the decision to move over to hair. Absolutely. So I mentioned that studying the environment was harder than studying genomics, and, and the tools were less developed. About 17, 18 years ago, the, when I was a PhD student, I remember first learning that the, one of the biggest differences between our genes and our environment is that our environment is highly dynamic. It's changing at the level of minutes to hours to days, whereas our core genomic sequence is set at conception. So it, it, is, it is far more stationary. We have some epigenetic changes, but for the most part, our core sequence is stationary. And that's a, that's a big difference. 
And so here the problem is not one of measuring more and more things. It's actually a problem of measuring more and more times. How do you measure something that's constantly changing? Then I looked over at my colleagues in epidemiology and they were trying their best. They were doing these perspective studies where they would measure a blood sample every year. And sure, over a span of maybe 10, uh, uh, 10 year study, they would have 10 blood samples. But that still doesn't get to the problem of something that is changing constantly. It's like me telling you, oh, here are 10 notes from a song. How enjoyable was that piece of music? Well, it wasn't. 10 notes doesn't make a piece of music. You need the whole dynamic. You need the entire rhythm. And so it became a problem of time. And for a long period of my own career, my own training, it seemed like it was an intractable problem. How do you go back in time? For example, I could ask you, Alicia, oh, what was your you know, molecular profile? What was your metabolism uh, a year ago? And then you know, uh, six months ago, and, but at an hourly resolution. I, I want to know what, how it was different during the day, during the afternoon, during the evening. And for me, the, the eureka moment came when I was looking at a, a tree that had been cut down and I saw growth rings in that tree. As I was counting backwards, I noticed, and I always say number seven, because that's, I still remember it was the seventh growth ring that I had counted, was garbled and very thin. I said, oh, seven years ago, something must have happened to this tree. It, there might have been a drought or there might have been an infection or something happened. And I realized that hey, if there were growth rings in some tissue in the human body, I could do the same thing. I could go back in time and start reconstructing a history across this archive. And then I started seeing growth rings everywhere. You know, my father would listen to these vinyl records of Nat King Cole, uh, and he would be playing Nat King Cole songs and some Elton John songs around the house. And I would look at those and I said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for these little rings that will remember all the notes and the history of the past. Now, that's how we came to the idea of developing this technology. But your question was, you know, how does this apply to autism? So let, let me quickly discuss that. We had developed this tool, and when I came to Mount Sinai, I said, look, you know, we have this tool that can start building a daily profile of past exposures and your biological response, even in your prenatal development. So we could go back well, you know, into the second trimester of pregnancy and say, well, this is what was happening to you before you were born. And the first time we did this was in those Swedish twins that I had mentioned to you. And we started seeing clear patterns of divergence. We called it systemic elemental dysregulation because these were not just toxic elements. These were elements that our body uses to react to environmental inputs. We started seeing it and there was a clear hit in the third trimester. Something was getting dysregulated in the third trimester. I'll be honest with you and your, your, your listeners here that the first time I saw this result, I just couldn't believe it. It was too clear a signal and I, I was very suspicious of it myself. And that's where we decided to replicate it. We said, okay, these are Swedish twins. Let's reproduce this in a sample in the U.S., uh, who are not twins, but who are siblings. So we are sort of moving away in that genetic likeness that sure, they still share a family similarity, but we are moving away in likeness. But also let's replicate it across generations. So we went to the UK, we found children who were born 20 years before our study participants were born. And so in the UK, we had these uh, children from, from the 1990s. And, and we also went to Texas and we collected some samples from there. That was a general population. I said, now we have four locations. 
And at each location individually, or when we pooled the data, it always gave us that clear signature that children who were diagnosed with autism had this elemental dysregulation. And we tested it in many different ways. It always, you know, held true. And, and that's where I started believing that there is a real signature here that can help us, you know, help us develop a clinical tool to, to, to assist in the treatment of children with autism. But there was a big problem hanging over our head. Baby teeth shed after the age of five. And that's a bit late for early intervention. So we all knew that, you know, this is a great research tool. But how do we now take all of that information and translate it to a, to a tool that you can get easily, that is non-invasive? You can collect it at any time of life. You don't have to wait for a tooth to shed. And then I went back to my PhD days asking the same question again. Which tissues have growth rings in them? And the obvious answer was hair. And so that's why a few years ago, about five, six years ago, we decided to transition from using baby teeth to looking at uh, growth rings in hair. And that's what led to, led to this paper. So yeah. you looked at uh, hair in three different areas of the world too, right? So you looked yeah, exactly, at yes. Japan, the yeah. U.S. and Sweden, and of course, they were there were there are differences between those groups, and so I think yes. that that's there was somewhat of a consistent finding. But I think the number one question is um, you mentioned the term elemental dynamics, yes. and so um, the the listeners, people who have asked me about this paper, have asked, what does that mean? How do you look at it in a, a strand of hair, right? Yes. So you talked yeah. about those rings. Tell us yes. about how, what the rings can tell us. And then what exactly is elemental dynamics or elemental metabolism? So we can uh, uh, put uh, our, uh, wrap our heads around that. Absolutely, absolutely. So like I said, we had seen the same dysregulation in, in, the, in the rhythms of these elements uh, in teeth. And now we were looking at hair. So how, how do we do it in hair? And how do we get enough data? So from a single strand of hair, we get, uh, and to convey this in simple terms, the same amount of data you would get if you drew blood uh, 500 to 1,000 times from an individual, because that's how many growth rings we, we measure. So it's a powerful tool. It's like saying, I would if I didn't have this technology, I would need 500 sequential blood samples collected every two to three hours, because that's our resolution. And that's just not possible, because it, it just it would be extremely traumatic to, to, to do that, especially in, in children. So now we have this sequence of data. So think of it like a song or like a piece of music. We have all the notes in sequence and now we can put them together and we start seeing this rhythm, what we call dynamics. Dynamics is a better word than rhythms because rhythm is just one type of dynamics. Not every pattern we see is as nicely organized uh, as a rhythm is. So we see patterns from, from very different types. And without going into all the technical and, and jargon, we borrow methods from this area of research that is very rarely used in medicine. It's called um, chaos theory. So it's the same kind of mathematical tools we use to study weather patterns, for example. And now we have this density of data that we bring these tools in. And instead of measuring a concentration or how much of an element you have in your hair, we are measuring how it changes over time. What is its dynamic? What's its rhythmic pattern? Or are the rhythms broken? And that's kind of what we are seeing, that the dynamics in children who don't have autism are very different. 
and, and for certain elements, they are more complex. And that complexity, that pattern gets broken down into little pieces, to simpler little pieces for children who will go on to have, uh, have an autism diagnosis. The elements we measure are, some of them are toxic metals like lead and, and such. Uh, others are essential nutrients that our, our body uses for many purposes like zinc and copper. And one of the papers we published uh, on earlier using teeth and hair uh, mentions how zinc-copper cycle is very important in autism. So this is not just about environmental exposures. It's also about how we metabolize or how our, our biology responds to those exposures. And none of this is possible with snapshot measures like blood or, or single point urine measures. We need a high density of measures. I always convey it like if your annual blood test at your uh, physical is a snapshot, what we are providing is a molecular movie because it has hundreds of frames in it and we can actually see how your molecules are, are moving over time. So explain how that works in a strand of hair. Are you looking at the length of the hair? Are you looking at within the strand itself, you talked about rings of a tree. Yes. I'm, I'm using my hands to describe to the view that the listeners can't see, yeah. but um, how are you measuring change over time it, in the it, hair? It's actually quite complicated. As you can imagine, a growth rings in a hair, a hair itself is a very tiny little, you know, very, very, very small sample. And so we're we working on technology. We you know, have a, a robot that actually slices a hair lengthwise. So that itself is very hard. And now, the, no two hair are alike. Hair comes in hair come in different shapes and sizes. Some are curly, some are straight. And you mentioned red hair before, although we don't see any differences. So uh, that 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 that's not an issue here. So we slice the hair lengthwise, and then how do we sample along uh, each individual growth ring? We we can't just go and cut it out, you know, physically. So we have to develop lasers, and we focus these lasers along a growth ring. So in very simple terms. Think of it like, like my analogy for a tree, but instead of looking at a cross section, I'm going lengthwise. So I start near the root of the hair or the root of the tree, and I, I walk my laser along the length of the tree going all the way to the tip. And doing that, I'm going through the history of the tree, just like I would have gone uh, if I had done it cross-sectionally. And at each growth ring, in our case, we are measuring the, uh, the temporal resolution is just a couple of hours. I'm getting in the same information you would get from a blood test. But like I said before, you know, we have gone to as many as 2,000 time points in, in one study, although we don't need that many. We just need far fewer. Uh, one centimeter of hair is enough. To, uh, it gives us enough data for our, for our machine learning and our AI methods to, to pick up that signature that is unique to autism. And because the, the samples in your study were of different ages, right? So some of yes. them were a couple of years and then the ones in Japan were, were younger. You're, you're, you can look at any any time period, right? And look at the changes Absolutely. over our, our older Our oldest patient, although we didn't include them in this study because the FDA says the, the, the there's an age cutoff at 21 years and then it's a separate category. In our own work, our oldest patient was 67 years old and our youngest children, as you mentioned in Japan, uh, our newborn babies. Maybe now would be a good time if I can give you a very quick overview of why we designed this study like this and what are the checks and balances and, and you know stress tests that we put in. So when I took a step back, I said, yes, look, we have done this study in teeth. We've done it in twins, in siblings in New York, in the general population in Texas. And then we went to the UK and we, we recruited children who are now in their 30s, but we had a samples from back when they were five and six and we see this in teeth. 
And now I'm seeing this in different populations all over again. Sure, we went back to Sweden and we had a study in New York, but we went to Japan. And now we're looking at it in hair. So we looked at it in multiple different countries that are ethnically different, their diet, their environmental aspects, culturally they're different, at different age groups, at different you know, generations, and in different tissues now, from teeth to hair, we are seeing the same consistent signature. It's at that time I became, what I like to say, a believer that there is a real signature here because we had stress tested it so much. Specifically to, to, answer, to, to answer your question, we went to Japan because we wanted to look at a population that was very different in terms of what we see in New York. So, you know, in our Japanese study, all the children were Japan, whereas New York is this wonderful mix of ethnicities. You know, there are recent immigrants in our studies. There are people who've lived here generations, you know, different types of hair texture and the such. And in Japan, they had hair from newborn babies. And then we waited for four years for them to get the same diagnostic gold standard as we are using in New York and as we are using in Sweden. And again, we went to Sweden because A, they were twins. So we have this sort of underlying genetic control. However, again, they're very different to children in New York and also children in, in, in Japan. For example, in New York, we have a hist history of lead exposure, especially where my hospital is in East Harlem. Whereas in Sweden, they never use lead in, in their paint, household paint and such products. So they are different environmental exposures. And the fact that the signal we find in Japan, Sweden, and New York are identical and can help diagnose the same condition measured with the same high level of clinical excellence was really a stress test. Can we really show that this technology works? And for us, gold standard, you know, medical advances are, are, are things like, like the diabetes test, you know. You can take the diabetes test and apply it in a Japanese or a Swedish or an American population. If it says it yes, then you most likely have diabetes. And that's where we were heading towards. Although I should clarify to, to the listeners that this is not a standalone diagnostic, it's a diagnostic aid. And I can, I can clarify that more if you like. I would like you to clarify that um, because the media, and this, is, this happens frequently, the media actually called it a groundbreaking test to diagnose autism. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I actually wanna, before I do that, I wanna talk about what were the differences? So you looked at the dynamics of, of different exposures to elements or what's in the hair. What were the differences between that you saw that could make this a diagnostic aid? Absolutely. So we started seeing clear signatures between um, children who went on to have a, a diagnosis of autism and those who did not. And this is not just in one element. It, as we have listed in the paper, it's, it's a panel of about 15 different elements. The differences, and this is an important point, does not exist in concentration. So we're not trying to say children who develop autism have been exposed to more of this or have a nutritional deficiency or some, some other element. It's not that simple because had it been that simple, we would have found it by now. It's far more complicated. It's more like how these elements move together. How are they metabolized together over time? So it's more like this these this intermingling of, of rhythmic patterns uh, that are very much linked to, to our metabolism of these environmental inputs, whether they're harmful inputs, uh, for example, through pollution, or whether they are essential elements that we are getting through our diet. And we find that 
these rhythmic patterns are uh, disrupted in children who go on to develop autism. And they exist. Uh, and from the hair, we know they exist at birth. From our work on teeth, we know they exist even before uh, a child is born. We have seen the signatures in the third trimester. So they are very much present um, from the day you're born. Let's get back to that tricky question about it being a diagnostic aid versus a diagnostic tool. Yep. So the media has called this a, a way to diagnose autism. You were very, yep. very clear in your paper. You couldn't have been clearer that this was not meant to be a standalone diagnostic test. Yes. So um, how do you envision this being used to help yes. clinicians or the community? Because there's long, I mean, we're, we're always at ASF, we're always looking for the way to reduce wait lists and get yes. kids into intervention and support faster. So what? how could this possibly be used? That's, and you know what you said is exactly our motivation is to reduce the wait list, increase the accuracy, and also, to provide, uh, uh, to empower the clinician to make a diagnosis sooner so that early intervention can be provided uh, and at a time of what I call the critical window of opportunity, you know, the, the sooner after birth, the, the better. So the way this technology is designed to work is not, you know, a, not a standalone diagnostic. Think of it like so many other tools that clinicians are using effectively. Think of it like, you know, your colon cancer screening tool, like for example, a popular brand is Cologuard, or like a cholesterol test. Just because you have high cholesterol, that does not is not the final say in whether you have heart disease. That's a that's a great piece of information for the clinician. It's like a red flag going up. So. And just like in the cholesterol example, if you come back positive on the hair test, the idea is that the clinician will look at that and use all the other clinical tools that are available to them. For example, family history. You know, if you have an older sibling with autism, your risk of autism is higher and the such. You start looking at that. The idea is to achieve two things. Firstly, to reduce the wait list because our test is highly accurate when you don't have autism. It is almost 99% accurate. So it removes all those kids who are clogging up the system and they don't have autism. They might have some other health condition. And so let's not waste their time or the clinician's time. Let's send them to where they can get the help for their specific condition, but they are not on the autism track. And the second part is when our flag goes up, the clinician will start paying more attention to these children who, who we now know at our, are at a higher risk of autism, just like we do with the colon cancer you know, screening test. Uh, it by itself doesn't mean that you have colon cancer, but it means that you certainly need to get to your doctor soon and start doing further testing. So that, that's, that's kind of what, what you know, this test does. And to be very clear of what it does not do, as I've said before, it's not a standalone diagnostic test. So also don't, you know, my, my example, perhaps because my journey as a parent started with a bit of a bang for the listeners who don't know. I have triplets. So I remember that day very clearly when my wife used a, a, a home pregnancy test and it went positive. And then you sort of know that you're pregnant based pretty much on that test. So that's not that's not what this hair test does. It's not a standalone test like a pregnancy test. So I always compare it to that that experience of my life. Yeah, your wife's pregnancy test must have been glowing with triplets. It, it, it was <laughs> the, the the positive the line was very positive. Yes. I bet. Um, so I do have um, another question. You talked about sure. a little bit 
ensuring that there is actually, it is an autism diagnosis, not something else. And in the paper, yes. you did mention um, looking at those with ADHD, either with yes. or without autism. Can, so can you tell us a little uh, bit about- Absolutely. So, so we have published uh, data from teeth and we have similar data on hair, which is not published, but I'm happy to share it, where there are children who have, as you know, autism is a spectrum. Uh, and there are some children who have an autism diagnosis and an ADHD diagnosis. So this became an important clinical question for us. Can we subtype autism to start distinguishing what ex where exactly you are on the spectrum and what type of symptom do you have? And ADHD was a good place to start because A, it is also a difficult condition to diagnose. Uh, it has no you know, biomarker test, uh, just like we don't have for autism. B, it does get confused for autism, and sometimes children can have both autism and ADHD. So what we found was that we can accurately distinguish those children who have neither, we call them our controls, those who just have autism, those who just have ADHD, or those who are comorbid, those who have both. And that's the advantage of having a biomarker-based test, that you can start looking at diseases that are close to autism. You're not just se separating autism from non-autism case uh, controls. We're also looking at the next nearest disease, which in this case was ADHD. There's a long-term vision here as well. I honestly believe that we will learn a lot about how to treat autism better if we start looking at other diseases and not study autism in isolation. For example, we know there's a subtype of autism that have significant gastrointestinal symptoms. In fact, in a recent study that was just accepted for publication yesterday, we have shown that at the same time in the third trimester when there's elemental dysregulation, we are seeing also a dysregulation in inflammation. And as far as I know, this is the first time anyone's been able to map fetal inflammation at a daily resolution. And we started looking at fetal inflammation in the second trimester, worked at a, at a daily scale forward well past birth, and again, we see that whether you are twins living in Sweden or whether you are children living in the US, when those who were diagnosed with autism had this inflammatory dysregulation. And that inflammatory dysregulation is also a feature that we see in uh, diseases like, like, like uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disorders and, and the such. So I believe a unified platform is needed that can not just study autism, but that can study other diseases and then this crosstalk between one disease and, and another can, can help us find novel ways to treat autism. And, and this has been the history of medicine. So often we find treatments uh, for a condition because the drug was actually invented to treat some other disease, but perhaps wasn't as effective there. And, and you know, medical history is just, just littered with such you know, wonderful, uh, lucky discoveries. Yeah, there are some companies now that are actually um, they're, they're really focused on the drugs that have been uh, gone through the gamut for safety, yeah. but not efficacy for a particular disease or disorder or condition, yes. but they're still just sitting on the shelf and they've got all this data behind them and they have yet to be what, what's called repurposed. So there we, are, are, we are, are helping two, uh, two drug trials. Uh, one is for a phase two autism drug that they're using our platform. One is for just a nutraceutical that helps uh, remove toxic substances and from the body. And I believe that will also one day be shown to be useful for autism, although right now it's not an autism trial. It is just a trial to see whether we can remove those toxic substances from the body. 
because many of those elements that 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 uh, that this nutraceutical targets are ones that we keep keep turning up as as risk factors for for autism so again uh, we are actively pursuing this this exact line of what you said looking at different drugs that already exist uh, and i myself and as i said i'm involved in, in two phase two trials so this the the findings of this study don't and i think this was also a misinterpretation so the findings of this study don't necessarily go to the etiology specifically of autism however um, i think we both agree about the importance of studying the environment in autism both in terms of etiology life course um, and you know for many different ways do you want to end this by making some final comments about that Absolutely. So we're not saying that this is definitely the cause. In fact, the cause of autism will be very hard to disentangle. And of course, the, the very definition of causation can be up for philosophical debate. However, what we wanted to do was not develop a tool that's based just on symptoms. We wanted to develop a tool that's based in, in you know, molecular biology so that it can be targeted, whether it's through pharmaceuticals, through nutraceuticals, through prevention of controlling our environment. So we very much wanted to focus on modifiable pathways. And this is where I, I love to end uh, all my conversations that perhaps the most important modifiable aspect of anyone's life is their environment. You can't change your genes, but everyone is the professor and chairman of their own environment. Everyone is the CEO of their own house. So we can take active steps today, whether you have someone with autism in your house or not, to control all the different toxic exposures that come in through diet, through pollution, just through you know lifestyle habits. Beyond that, what I said at the beginning was, as you know, that our focus in terms of research has largely been towards genetic. And I'm, I'm not saying that was wrong, that was just the state of the science at that time. But now we need everyone to demand that we have an equal investment in environmental medicine because so many of these, so many of the conditions that affect our generation and our children's generation, like autism, are largely driven by the environment. And, and we we have to focus on, on that aspect to bring about a meaningful change and, and bring about that change soon. Thank you. And I'm glad that you did also bring in. Um, lots of different aspects of children's health, because while the people listening to this podcast are probably most interested in autism and developmental disorders, they may not understand that environmental exposures affect a lot of other child developmental disorders too, um, not just of the brain, things like asthma, things like diabetes, um, other aspects. So it, you know, even if you're not concerned necessarily about autism, it's important to be concerned about modifiable factors to the environment. Alicia, thank you again. And thank you to your foundation for, for everything that you do. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for explaining this study because I think um, the well-meaning or maybe sometimes not well-meaning media um, sometimes causes a little bit of confusion sometimes. So I'm glad you were able to, to be here and, and clear everything up for us. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you.